Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Today we start a new series. We're going to be looking at Christian doctrines, the pillars of the faith. Now, the idea of preaching doctrine is not really a very popular one, if I'm being honest. Um, despite Drew's affirmation that he's looking forward to this, uh, most people don't. When you start to talk about doctrine and so forth, uh, people's eyes roll in their head, and uh, oh my goodness, what what are we going to do? I have a few quotes here that uh, kind of encapsulate a lot of people's thoughts, and and just let me say at the outset, don't don't amen these because I'm about to say they're wrong. So I don't want anybody embarrassed or anything like that by by the by the amen when the preacher then later says oh, you shouldn't have done that. So. Uh, even if even if you do amen in your heart, don't do it out loud, okay? So don't worry. All right. So uh, away with the tedious complexities of dogma. Let us have the simple spirit of worship. Just worship, no matter what. And then the next one, Henry Miller. Example moves the world more than doctrine. The great exemplars are the poets of action, and it makes little difference whether they be forces for good or forces for evil. Now, D.L. Moody is one of my favorites, so, but I think he missed it here. A rule I have had for years to treat the Lord Jesus as a personal friend. That's good. He is not a creed, a mere doctrine, but it is he himself we have. And there's some truth there, except that he, he, he gives a slight to, to doctrine there. And, and I, I want to just respond to him with the next statement here. And that's simply this. And I think this is important for our starting point. You cannot know Jesus Christ as a personal friend unless you know who he truly is in the truths found about him in Scripture and by extension, proper doctrine. Okay. You can't just say Jesus is my friend. There's more to it than that. I think uh, Thomas Goodwin hits a nail on the head when he says Christ's riches are unsearchable. And this doctrine of the gospel is the field this treasure is hidden in. Doctrine is vital to our faith, to our walk, to our relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't know if, how much y'all keep up on news in the church and so forth, but there's, over the last couple years, just the last two years, there's been a, a just... Uh, an, an immense amount of leaders and young people, college age and so forth, who are leaving the church, and and, and they say they're they're de-Christianizing, that sort of thing. That's that's the, the term that they used. Uh, leaders, song leaders, and so forth, in some of the biggest churches in America, have, have just left, denounced Christ and Christianity. They'll say things like, I still believe Jesus is my friend. I still believe he's important, but I just don't find anything, you know, life-changing in the teachings of Christianity and so forth. These are people who led worship. These are people who, who have written songs that uh, churches have sung and so forth all over the world. And when you dig a little bit deeper into their comments, 
And, and you start to, to talk to them about why. They start saying, well, I, I, I struggle with how this reality matches with this reality. Or, or I don't understand how God could do this, and this could also be the truth. And what every one of their excuses boils down to is they simply did not know doctrine. They've never been taught it. It's never been expressed to them. Christianity has been a little more than uh, a feeling, an emotion, a moment. And so they end up walking away. So doctrine is important, and I want to spend some time on that reality today from the Scriptures itself and what Paul has to say. But but before we get there, I just want to put up the... This, this creed, it's generally called the Apostles' Creed. So I know that's little print. I understand. Um, but I wanted to get it all on one page there, one screen. The rest of the slides won't be like that, I promise. Okay? But um, many of you know this or know uh, a, 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 an expression of it or heard something along this line so forth. The Apostles' Creed is built upon a, a, a text creed called the Old Roman Creed that goes back to 150 A.D. So 60 years after the death of the apostles, we already have this creed out there. And it probably goes back before that. That's just the earliest written example we have in our hands. They're clearly quoting something from earlier times. So we know it goes back before that, but that's the date that we can firmly put on it. And this is, the, this is the outline, if you will, of the messages we're going to follow throughout this, this series in terms of what we're going to do. And I'm just going to read it to you. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. The third day He rose from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's the core. That's the core of what it means to be a Christian. Now, there are other things that we've divided over, we've argued over, we've fought over in Christianity over the years that are peripheral to that, but that's the core. That's the essence of our faith. So we're going to look at these issues over the next several weeks. Today I want to look more closely here at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul here is talking to Timothy, of course. He's encouraging him. He's trying to help him to understand his role in the ministry. That's what First and Second Timothy are about. It's one mentor writing to uh, his understudy, if you will, teaching him, instructing him, helping him to see what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a leader. But even though these words are directed at a pastor per se, they're not limited to the pastor. They are instructive for everybody. They are uh, 
a good word, a good explanation, a good expression for all of us to hold on to. So beginning re- reading in the second half of verse 2. It says, teach and encourage these things. So these are the things Paul wants Timothy to teach and to encourage believers in. If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fail or fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you have been called, about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all, and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would just help us to to understand, help us to appreciate the importance of right theology, thinking about you correctly, of thinking about how you've responded to us, how you've reached out to us correctly. God, I, I pray that you would encourage us this morning. Encourage us to to dig more deeply, to live more righteously, to carry out the tasks that you've given us as your people. We love you, Lord. We ask that you use this time for your purposes. In Christ's name, amen. So what does proper doctrine do? What, What does it accomplished according to Paul here in this letter. Well, the, the, the first thing it tells us that proper doctrine does is that it is necessary for one to be a healthy Christian. If you as an individual want to be healthy, if you as an individual want to understand who you are, if you as an individual want to understand who God is and how to relate to Him and how to walk with Him, proper doctrine is essential to that journey. Paul here uses the term sound doctrine. That 
their sound teaching of our Lord Jesus. And that word sound is actually a medical term. It's a term that, that, that suggests uh, health, well-being, wholeness, completeness. And he says that, that there are three unhealthy traits of heretics. Now, let me be real clear here, right here at the start, about something. Because I'm going to use, by necessity, I'm going to use the word heresy over the next several weeks. And, and, and let me just be clear that there is a difference between heresy and bad theology. Okay? There's a difference between the two. You can have bad theology about an issue and not necessarily be a heretic. A heretic, to be a heretic, to, to, to proclaim heresy is, is, a, is a very high standard, to be, to be quite honest. It is to rise to the level that you are questioning ideas, beliefs that are fundamental to what it means to be a believer. That if you hold to them, you can no longer, from a biblical standpoint, call yourself a believer. Okay? To have bad theology is to say, I got something wrong. I misunderstood something. They misunderstood something, if you're talking about someone else. It's to say that you've mischaracterized some concept or some relational idea in Scripture. But that does not necessarily mean you've risen to the level of heretic where you're denying a basic fundamental truth. So, for instance, someone with bad theology may overemphasize the wrath of God to the detriment of his love or the love of God to the detriment of his wrath. They admit that both are there, but they may so push the love that they almost forget his wrath or so push the wrath that they almost forget his love. That does not necessarily rise to the level of heresy, but if someone denies God as creator, someone who denies that, that the triune God, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one of them is not God, then they've risen to a level to where they're not even relating to the true God. And therefore, their salvation, as Scripture explains it, is in doubt. Not that I make that judgment. Scripture makes that judgment. And so I, I want to just be, be clear here at the outset that, that when I if I use the word heresy or heretic or something along those lines, I'm not doing that lightly or loosely. I have a very defined purpose in using that term. So what are the three unhealthy traits of heretics? That is, someone who has denied the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul outlines it here. Verse 4, he says, number one, they're what? He says they're conceited. Now the word here that he's using, and the word as we use it today, basically means simply that they are self-centered. They're about themselves. The heretic, the, the, the person who pushes false doctrine, does so because they want what feels good to them. They want what feels right to them, or they want to elevate their own standing, their own position, their own role in the situation. And so they are focused upon themselves. They are conceited in their mindset. Secondly, he says what? 
Uh, they understand nothing. They lack spiritual knowledge. Now, we've talked before about the difference between knowledge and wisdom, and Paul's emphasis here is on knowledge, not just wisdom. Wisdom is what? It's, it's knowledge applied to life circumstances, and, and we all struggle with that. I struggle with that. But knowledge, spiritual knowledge at its core, is, is essential to um, what it means to continue to walk. It, it, it's built around facts, truths, objective truths of who God is. To deny those, to reject those, to ignore those, is to, is to fail to even talk to the right person. I've shared before uh, on Wednesday nights, I can't remember if I've done it on, in Sunday mornings or not, but um, several years ago I was on the church league softball team. And it was customary in the church league softball team at the end of the game for the two teams to get out there and to, to pray together. It's a good way to fellowship with fellow believers in the community and so forth. And just to, to kind of tie things up the way you should as Christian believers. But in our church league, softball league, there in uh, HEB, um, the Mormon ward was a part of it. LDS, Latter-day Saints, as they call themselves. And we played them, of course. We were in our schedule and so forth, and we played them. But before the game, I walked over to the coach. I said, I just, you know, I just want you to know that at the end of this game, our team can't pray with yours. We'll play with you. We respect you. We love you. But we can't pray with you. And he was like, well, why not? We worship Jesus. We follow Jesus. We're praying to Jesus. And my answer was as short as it could be in, in that sort of setting. You know, you don't want to go into a big, deep doctrinal thing. But the answer was simply, you don't pray to the same Jesus we do. Your Jesus is not born of a virgin. Your Jesus is not co-equal with God the Father. Your Jesus is not eternal. He was created at some point. Your Jesus did not save humanity by his death on the cross. Your Jesus is not the same Jesus. And it would be hypocritical, it would be false of me to bow my head and suggest that he is. And I don't do that lightly. I, I, don't, I don't like to push people away. I don't like to alienate somebody. But doctrine is essential to who it is we're conversing with, who we're praying to. The third thing is that heretics fall into is they develop a spirit of, of animosity, arguing fallacies. He says they get worked up about words and quarreling and slander and evil suspicions and, and all these other things. They elevate things that shouldn't be elevated. They argue about things that shouldn't be argued about. One of the last things we're going to deal with here uh, in this series is, is the second coming. Now within the realm of the second coming, there are all sorts of beliefs within evangelical life. Okay. And there are places where I disagree with some, probably with some of you on that issue. You disagree with me. 
And that's all right. Okay, that's all right. To disagree about certain interpretations of passage and how they're going to play out and that sort of thing, that's okay. That's not heresy. But what is heresy is to deny that Christ will physically return to this earth one day. Scripture clearly, unequivocally teaches that truth. Christ will return physically to this earth one day. That's a biblically expressed, communicated truth that we build our faith around. And yet, to go beyond that into things that we really don't know, we really can't know, and to argue about things, it does what? It rips churches apart. I know churches that exist solely because somebody got in a fight about whether Christ's coming would, would be mid-trib, or post-trib. And because they disagreed on that, they went out and started their own church. Okay. Both agreed that Christ was going to return. They just couldn't re agree on the timing of it. So therefore, they felt like they needed to get separated. That's the sort of thing that, that Paul's saying is, is, is unhealthy to us. It's unhealthy to our identity as individuals. How can you grow if you're so built about around the, the smaller things that you can't find joy, peace, and agreement on the big things. Now, there are different degrees of unhealthiness. How you hold some doctrines, so forth. Um, will vary. And there is room, I would suggest, for ignorance. And by that, what I mean, I, I don't mean by that I want you to walk around in ignorance. But what I mean by that is sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. Or we don't know what we're supposed to know because we've never been told. And so I don't want anybody in here thinking that, that you know, as we go through the series and, and we point out some biblical truths about who God is and those sorts of things, you're like, wow, I've never never really thought of it that way. Man, was I wrong or was I off base? I don't want anybody drawing the conclusion, well, I must not be a Christian then because I was wrong about that. That's not what I'm trying to argue. I'm trying to argue and trying to, to get across the idea, and I think Paul's trying to get across the idea, that there is a willful disregard for the truth that will destroy our health and well-being, ultimately. And in some cases, ser certain serious cases, spiritual life is not even present in such circumstances. The person's not alive in Christ because they're so obstinate about clear teachings of God's Word. And so our health as individuals is a part of it. A, a second thing, a second reality of proper doctrine is that it's healthy for, it's necessary for the health of us as a body, as a church, as an entity together. Paul highlights the, the consequences of an unhealthy congregant are what? They are an unhealthy church, a church that's in division. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, 
constant disagreements among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. It's the same list that Paul has utilized throughout his epistles of things that represent the deeds of the flesh, things that represent the, the, the mindset that is opposed to God's purposes. The fights, the quarreling, the slander. Because if you're not able to understand the truth, about God, then you're not going to be able to understand the truth about each other either. If you're not moved by the nature of God and His love and His grace and, and His sovereignty and, and the other elements that are part of doctrine, then you're not going to be moved by uh, the relational connections of the church either. They are intertwined. There is a reason that the Apostles' Creed, as we we read earlier. It starts with the doctrine of God, but it says what? The communion of saints. The holy universal church. It's fundamental to who we are. And you cannot have the connection within the church if you don't have the connections with God. Well, the vertical has to be right for the horizontal to work, to put it another way. Third, Proper doctrine is a uh, component to finding true contentment. At the end of the day, contentment is a, is a vital part of who we are. Verse 6, in my translation, starts with the word but. It's actually probably better rendered from the Greek, indeed. Indeed, godliness is a way, uh, uh, excuse me, indeed, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul's comment there, his, his words there, is not just saying it's, it's good or it's a gain. He's saying it is, it's vital and it absolutely grows out of proper doctrine. Godliness, doctrine does lead to gain, just not the kind of gain those holding the false doctrines pursue. Godliness is what? Godliness is simply defined this, this way. It's a very simple definition. Right thought mixed with right action. That's godliness. Right thoughts about who God is mixed with right actions responding to who He is. And the word contentment here is what? It's a standing, it's a, it's a position, it's a mindset that is independent of, separated from external circumstances. Whatever we're going through, we find contentment. Paul highlights this very clearly in the book of Philippians. That I've learned in every circumstance to be content, whether... Things are going well or things are going bad. Whether I'm wealthy or whether I'm poor, whether I'm well-fed or whether I'm hungry, I have found the ability to be content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is what he says there. But how can God, how can Christ strengthen us 
if we are misrepresenting him, if we're misunderstanding our relationship with him. This right belief combined with right attitude and action is true spiritual wealth. Money here is simply one example. It's not meant to be a, an exhaustive expression here. It's an example of an attitude that finds desires for things for this world, supplanting a desire for things of God. The love of money is the root of all evil, he says. Why does he say that? Because Jesus said as much in Matthew chapter 6. When he said what? You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and the material realities of this earth. To pursue the material realities of this earth is to what? It's to abandon the truth. It's to wander away from the truth. It's to wander away from God. Doctrine disciplines the mind. It focuses our mind on the things of God. It's his instruction to us about who he is. So Paul encourages us with these truths about doctrine to, to discover, to pursue proper doctrine. To learn proper doctrine. And he says we do this, first of all, because it is both a defensive and offensive endeavor. In verse 11, Paul says, You, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness. There is both a defensive and an offensive element here to doctrine. It's defensive in, in the fact that it teaches us to, to, to flee these things. This is Paul's default advice, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, Ephesians 6, 2 Timothy 2. Paul always comes back to this idea of fleeing the false. But of course, to to, to flee the false, you have to be able to identify the false. Let me put a picture up here. Is that an accurate representation of a $100 bill? Yes or no? No? What do you think? Is that, is that a picture of a $100 bill? No? How do you know? You can look at the border. Okay, so you got that. What's it say there? It says, the motion picture use only. Okay. Then you, you look a little bit closer at Ben. Look at his face. Put up, put up the next slide. There you got an actual $100 bill next to it. You don't have the cocked eyebrow in the actual one. Now, how did you know that the first one was fake? Because you knew what a, a real one looked like. Okay? You knew what a real one looked like. If I were to stand up here and teach and try and highlight all the falsehoods that are out there, I would never cover them all. I could never co cover them all. 
by the time I got to cover them all, there'd be what? There'd be a new one that I needed to cover. Okay? In my lifetime, I couldn't cover all the falsehoods that are out there. Doctrine, even just doc, the main doctrinally issues. So how do I equip you to be able to identify those falsehoods? If I can't cover them all, if I can't say this and this and this and this is falsehood, how do I, as a pastor, help you do that? I point you to the truth. I help you to see what authentic Christian doctrine and belief looks like. That then allows you to respond appropriately when the falsehoods come. When they appear. And so it serves a defensive purpose. It's also offensive because pursuing doctrine, Paul says this very clearly right here, pursuing doctrine there in verse 11 is characterized by what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Those are fruits of the Spirit. Righteousness is right conduct. Godliness is right perspective. Faith is right focus. Love is right motivation. Steadfastness is right resolve. Gentleness is right interaction. Doctrine will drive you in that direction. You can't get righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness right if you don't have the doctrine right. It's simply not possible to express things the way God would have them expressed if you're not starting from the right position. Paul also tells us that learning doctrine is a, is a lifelong pursuit. Verses 12 through 14 here, he highlights this. He encourages Timothy to, to fight the good fight. He encourages Timothy to, in the presence of God and all who live and of Christ Jesus, to keep his command without fault or failure. It's interesting that he mentions Jesus' confession before Pilate. What's he referring to? Why, why throw in that reference? Uh, of all the things that Jesus did, why throw in that reference? Well, he's probably alluding to John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king, and for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into this world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is Jesus saying there? What is Paul alluding to there? That Jesus' whole purpose for coming was to point to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to me. They obey my word, follow my teachings. 
Paul wraps up all of this encouragement, and all of this instruction to Timothy here with what? You keep doing it until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until he's here, you keep learning. You keep growing. How is that possible? How, how do we even begin to contemplate this idea, this concept that we can think the right things, we can act the right way, we can, we can be the right people, that we can keep this command without fault or failure, as Paul puts it here. Paul tells us, he reveals to us that learning doctrine is best accomplished from an attitude of worship. Worship is what drives our appreciation and our knowledge of doctrine. And Paul illustrates that very clearly here by giving us a doxology. He gives us this this reflection upon who God is. God will bring this about in his own time. He is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal power. He's what? He's broken into song, y'all. As he's thinking about the glory of God, as he's thinking about where all of this comes from, he starts singing, or at the very least, quoting a hymn that was sung about God. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. The one who has authority over physical and spiritual realms. He gives us Three descriptions of of God's essence. He alone has immortality. There's one of those places where we've wandered off in Christianity. You're not immortal. You're not immortal. God alone is immortal. Paul says it right there. Our ability to live forever is granted us by God's sovereign design, desire, and will. It's not something built into us. God alone is immortal. He's the only one who has always been. He's the only one who always will be in and of himself. We'll live eternally with him, yes. Why? Because he makes it so. says he dwells in unapproachable light. We've all been there. You're there in the darkness or something and suddenly a bright light shines in your face. And what happens? You are frozen. You can't move. You can't think. You can't do anything. For that moment, you're that deer in the headlights. What do I do here? The light is so overwhelming, it 
robs us of all our own capacity. And, and Paul here says, that's God. God is so pure, so holy, so wonderful, so glorious, that apart from His grace, we're frozen and unable to do it. No one has seen or can see him. Paul says, he's different than us. He's different than us, and he always will be different than us because he's God, and we're not. Paul's intention here is to express, to communicate the awe, the awesomeness that God is. And as we acknowledge His position and His authority and His nature, that just leads us into worship. Remember, worship is not just singing a song. In fact, it's probably not even primarily about singing a song. Worship is an attitude, a disposition that acknowledges God's worth. That's what the word means. So that's going to play out in our actions. That's going to play out in our thoughts. That's going to play out in our attitudes. That's going to play out in our coming together. That's going to play out in our sharing who He is out there. Because in God, we experience the odd and yet complementary realities of fear and love. How do those two things come together to, to properly express and, and deal with our relationship with Him through doctrine. It's through doctrine that we understand those elements and those aspects of Him that instill fear. It's through doctrine that we understand and we apply those elements of Him that instill love. And by properly holding those things, we can blend those two things together in a way that's healthy, not hurtful. When you first fall in love with somebody, there's a lot of fire and passion. There's a lot of excitement just to be in their presence. You can't help but think about them. You can't help but want to be near them, be in their presence. And there's a lot of similarities to that with our relationship with God. Most of us, when we came to Christ, we couldn't help but think about him. And all we wanted to do was be near him. To know him better, to learn more about him, to, to tell others about who he was. Just like the romantic relationship, such passion can only be sustained for so long. 
and the way that passion continues on, that the way that passion turns into something deeper and more precious and something more wonderful is what? It's through truth of who that person is and who you are and how you relate to each other. It's that knowledge that sustains through the difficult time. It's that knowledge that undergirds excitement well into the years of your time together. We want to have the excitement and the passion for God that we once had and and an even better expression of it because it's deeper and built upon truth than we have to study doctrine. So I want to encourage you over the next several weeks as as we address these issues, there's, there's an outline of where we're going on our website. You can see the sermons and where they're going to be and what passages we're going to be dealing with. I want to encourage you to spend some time ahead of time digging into those scriptures, thinking through the things that those scriptures teach and advocate. Growing in your own understanding of the truth of God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. God, I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has been walking in falsehoods and not understanding you, not understanding their need for a relationship with you, God, I pray that you would draw them. Even here, this message that has not necessarily been evangelistic, God, I pray that you would help us all to realize the priority of understanding you, of knowing you, and making you known. And to commit this morning to furthering that walk, furthering that journey that we're on. Use this time for your purposes, God. In Christ's name.